It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocy, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socy. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday we'll update at filmsociology.tumblr.com. A little later on in the show, in the second half of the show, I'll replay my 2011 interview with Stuart McLean of the Vinyl Cafe. Stuart passed away a couple weeks ago, and uh, while I did pay tribute to him on the uh, the blues show with the Canadian Blues House Party, uh, when he was uh, when the show uh, the interview I did with him in 2011, which was previewing the Vinyl Cafe performing in Indianapolis, we talked about the history of Canadian cinema. So uh, we'll play that in the second half of the program. But yes, it is the Film Geeks. Final Four. The Academy Awards are Sunday night. Once again, depending on when you listen to the show, because it's on three times, Saturday and Sunday and Monday. So, uh, you know, remember that when you're listening in. Okay, we are going to start things off, and and people have asked, what what are my picks? And I will give you the picks for entertainment purposes only. Please do not take Junior's College Fund and bet on La La Land. Well, anyway, moving on. <laughs> of the uh, yes, of the nine film nominees, I think with my heart and with my head, I would pick La La Land. It was my it was my number one film of the year. It's a lot of fun. I know there a uh, big smile on my face watching this. I know there has been a kind of English patient slash Titanic level <laughs> uh, backlash over La La Land, and not so much that it's terrible. Just it's uh, there's been a, a a swelling number of people. Who have said it's good? It's not great, and uh, so for them, for you, it won't be the first time uh, a film you thought was winning Best Picture was not the best picture in your book. But for mine, it is. So I'm I'm okay with that. And yes, if if we were back in the old days and there were five, still just five nominees, not up to ten, my five would be La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, Fences, and Hell or High Water. There you go. Not a diss on the other four. Um, I guess I was talking with Abdul Hakim Shabazz. There's the Varsity Club, and then there's the JV Club. And uh, you know what? Not a bad JV Club. Uh, best Actor. Um, 
I'm going with Denzel Washington for fences. I know there was some swell uh, swelling for uh, for Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea. It is, it is his best performance, but uh, I think uh, Denzel, because he knew this character inside and out, especially uh, doing it on stage for so long, I think he will join the ranks of the three-time Academy Award winners. Best Actress, um, if you'd have told me a couple months ago, um, when actually before the nominations came out, I probably would have picked Natalie Portman for Jackie, but it looks like it's going to be going to Emma Stone for La La Land, another favorite who's uh, been constantly doing good work and uh, the whole singing and dancing thing, and she'll, she'll thank Ryan in her acceptance speech. Best Actor in a Supporting Role, uh, Mahershala Ali for Moonlight. Um, yes, that guy from House of Cards. We will now know how to memorize. We'll now know how to say his name. But also a very strong field and a very underrated field. We yes, Jeff Bridges plays an old coot again in Hell or High Water, and Dev Patel gets some love. Michael Shannon always good to see and stuff. And Lucas Hedges gets points for going up against uh, Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea. Um, what is probably more of a sure bet. Hopefully more of a sure bet than Best Picture is Viola Davis for Best Supporting Actress for Fences. Yes, there has been talk. She should have been in the uh, Best Actress category, but uh, talk to Meryl Streep in Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, Davis is great in the film, just like Washington is great in, in that film, because she's uh, had, her, had her body and soul wrapped around that character for a while. So uh, there, there was those. If I was voting for feature film, animated feature film, I would go with Kubo and the Two Strings. It wouldn't surprise me if Moana or even Zootopia get it. I should note, The Red Turtle, which is one of the five nominees, is now in theaters here in Indianapolis. They're over at that north side place with the bar. And it's a, it's a Miyazaki-produced uh, film. It's a French, uh, French picture, animated film, about a gentleman stranded... Uh, shipwrecked on a tropical island, and uh, his interactions with said character. It is a beautiful piece. Imagine, it's not a great comparison, but imagine Castaway with less dialogue. And uh, and one of the things about the animated feature films is, yes, you get the films you are familiar with, Moana, Zootopia, and maybe ones you are less familiar with, Kubo and the Two Strings. And then the two, for, and quite often they're not from the U.S., or, or they are dubbed into English for the uh, for the English speaking market, but uh, the Red Turtle and My Life as a Zucchini. So hopefully those films will get a bigger audience. I think that would be very very cool. Um, anyway, th- those are the big ones um, for directing. Uh, I'm gonna go with Damien Chazelle for La La Land. I I know there are a lot of people that would say that their directing and best picture should be one in the same. Um, there are those like me that say, well, I think screenplay should be one in the same. Um, that being said for screenplays, as I scroll down fast, yes, hard hitting screen scrolling here on uh, film sociology for um, original screenplay. Um, I think the Academy is also very good at distributing, making sure this film gets some some love and this one gets some love. And I think this will be the one that uh, the big one for Manchester by the Sea with Kenneth Lonergan getting the screenplay award for that. For adapted screenplay, probably is going to go to Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. But if I had a ballot, I would vote for August Wilson in Fences. And yes, I don't mind film plays. I don't have a problem with that. And August Wilson did a hell of an adaptation of his own work. So anyway, those are some of the major categories. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel hosting. Uh, well, as usual, 
half the audience is going to be enjoying and the other half is going to be irritated because the host is doing what they're hired to do. It does not bother me so long as the monologue is good. And yes, there's going to be a lot of, how should I put it? There's going to, there's going to be a lot of poking of the hornet's nest, the orange hornet's nest, uh, I'm sure, throughout the evening. Uh, so long as he's got a good monologue and I laugh, that's fine. I'm not there for the cost outfits, <laughs> not there for the outfits, not there for the musical numbers, death montage. Uh, that's fine. I wish I'd bring back the, uh, career achievement and the Thalberg award ceremonies as a part of the Academy. I don't care how long the, the ceremony is. I'm watching it. Um, but I'm also one of those. I'm there for like the Super Bowl. I'm actually there for the game, not everything else. So Tell me who wins. Give me some great monologues or I say great acceptance speeches. And sometimes the cinematographer and the production designers have better speeches than the main big name stars. And so anyway, that's going to be a fun Sunday night. Uh, the Film Geeks Final Four. Now, the night before the Oscars, speaking of Film Geeks Final Four, the Razzies, the 37th annual Golden Raspberry Awards will happen. That's what they do. Um, and if you've ever seen the Razzie nominees or the Razzie Award list and history, they, they have an axe to grind with films that just offend them. And they have their own agenda, not unlike the Oscars. But this one's fun. Your worst picture nominees. Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Dirty Grandpa, Gods of Egypt, Hillary's America, The Secret History of the Democratic Party, Independence Day Resurgence, and Zoolander number two. Ladies and gentlemen, I think Batman vs. Superman is the la-la land of the Razzies. I don't think it was the worst film of the year. It was the most disappointing film of the year. Uh, of this list, I would say Dirty Grandpa is probably the worst. And the fact that Warcraft didn't get nominated is kind of a surprise. But I, I, I have a feeling it's going to sweep most of its awards. Um, again, if you're not familiar with uh, the Razzies, let's put it this way. Tyler Perry is up for worst actress for Boo and Medea Halloween. Kind of get where that's going there. Um, and they have such other categories as worst screen combo, like Ben Affleck and Harry Cavill for Batman versus Superman, as well as Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson for Zoolander 2, Tyler Perry and the same old worn-out wig in Boo, a Medea Halloween, Johnny Depp and his costumes in Alistair Looking Glass, uh, any two Egyptian gods or mortals in Gods of Egypt, and the entire cast of once-respected actors in Collateral Beauty. Other categories include Worst Director, Actor, Actress, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actress, Worst Prequel, Remake, Ripoff, or Sequel, and Worst Screenplay. So you can go to, you can go to the Razzie's website and check that out. So, fun awards weekend. This is the only ones I really care about and follow. All right. Shifting gears a little bit, um, and and the other thing is the thing about the Academy Awards, uh, especially if they win, they get a wider audience. It's great when the when a film gets nominated because it gets a wider audience. Case in point, The Red Turtle, but uh, but it's good business, of course. And something wins, more people are going to check it out to see what the hype is all about. So uh, and and if more people get to see more quality cinema, I'm all for that. Now, going to the IU Cinema calendar. Again, this all depends on when you're listening to this show. Saturday, February 25th at 3 o'clock from 1946, Paisan. Uh, Sunday, February 26th at 3 p.m. from 2012, Lost in Thailand. Monday, the 27th, the 2015 documentary, Poet on a Business Trip. Tuesday, the 
28th as a part of the Science on Screen series from 1997, Miss Evers' Boys. Uh, Wednesday, March 1st, Son of Saul, the 2015 uh, foreign film winner, if I remember right. That's Wednesday, March 1st at 7 o'clock. Thursday, March 2nd, short films from the Beijing Film Academy at 5 o'clock and Kung Fu Hustle at 8 o'clock. Friday, March 3rd, This Changes Everything from 2015, the documentary at 6.30 p.m. and Kidi, Kidai, sorry, at 9.30 p.m. on Friday, March 3rd. Kidai is also played Saturday the 4th at 3 p.m. Fish Tank at 7 p.m. on March 4th. And Sunday, March 5th, Double Exposure 2017, short program, silent, live accompaniment, student films. That's at 6.30 p.m. on Sunday, March 5th. And mark your calendars for The Love of a Man, the 2015 Indian uh, cinema documentary, Monday, March 6th at 7 p.m. Someone to Run With from 2006 on Tuesday, March 7th at 7 p.m., uh, Thursday, March 9th, Pedro Omoldovar's Julieta at 6.30 p.m., followed by Dragon Inn from 1967 at 9.30 p.m. And mark your calendars down the road. Here's a fun double feature on Saturday, March 11th from 1961 at 3 o'clock as a part of the Elvis in Hollywood series Blue Hawaii, one, the, the better of the Elvis in Hawaii films, the one where Angela Lansbury is his mother, the one that she was probably nine when she had Elvis. And then also Saturday, March 11th at 6.30 p.m. as a part of the Scorsese's Men of Faith series, the 2011 documentary George Harrison, Living in the Material World. And uh, speaking of the Elvis films, uh, Jailhouse Rock will be at IU Cinema on Monday, March 20th. So that's that's a fun thing to look at down in IU. Now, looking, marking your calendars over at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana, tonight, the 25th at 7.30 p.m., The Princess Bride. Always worth seeing on the, on, on the big screen. And, and this is a film I, I, have, to, I have to share. Um, there are times, ladies and gentlemen, when a surra- uh, events surrounding a film can either help or tarnish a film. And it took a long time for me to watch The Princess Bride again. I saw it when it opened back in 1987. I was also on a part of a really lousy double date that night. And uh, and that experience kind of marred me from The Princess Bride for several years. And that's a shame because it's a fine, fine film. All right. Over at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin on March 3rd and the 4th, the best of the fest from the 2016 Heartland Film Festival. So there will be four pictures over there. March 10th and 11th at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin. Vertigo, 2 and 7.30 p.m. both days. So nice stuff there. Of course, the, the classic Alfred Hitchcock film with James Stewart and Kim Novak. March 17th and 18th, 2 and 7.30 p.m. with all three endings. That's right, the film version of Clue. March 24th and 25th is a part of the, uh, oh, sponsored by Canines in Action, of course, uh, The Philadelphia Story, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and James Stewart. And then mark your calendars, April 7th and 8th, six films focuses on Tim Burton, the Tim Burton Film Festival. So Friday the 7th, we'll have The Nightmare Before Christmas and Batman. Saturday the 8th, Corpse Bride. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and Mars Attacks. All of those on April 8th. Nice stuff there. Showboat, April 14th and 15th. The Notebook, April 21st. 
And uh, Cartoons for Cans on April 22nd. The Big Lebowski, April 22nd in the evening. The Cartoons for Cans is at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. on the 22nd. Also, To Kill a Mockingbird, April 28th and 29th. And uh, also coming in May, The Wizard of Oz and The Goonies. Okay, um, we want to move on to uh, Dead People We Like because we never have time for Dead People We Don't Like. Longtime film critic and writer Richard Sheckle passed away um, on last Saturday at the age of 84. Reviewed films for Life magazine from 1965 until 72 and then wrote for Time magazine from then until 2010. Um, I always remember him best for his, uh, I mean, he does a lot of DVD commentaries, and I'm one of those. I buy the commentaries, or I buy the disc, and I listen to the commentary. I'm that guy. He's done a lot of classic films. I also remember his commentaries uh, on a lot of the Clint Eastwood films. Uh, going off the uh, the New York Times obit list, or obit write-up on him, um, talks about how he uh, didn't pull punches uh, on films like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Dismiss the Maltese Falcon, uh, dismissed uh, Gone with the Wind, but also loving films like Citizen Kane, Double Indemnity, The Godfather, The Searchers, Pinocchio, the original King Kong, uh, even films like The 400 Blows and No Name on the Bullet. So anyway, uh, he apparently, according to the piece, uh, didn't he didn't view film going as an experience frozen in memory. And I guess the two things he was looking for was, did the film have a lasting effect and would you watch it again? And sometimes that's that's good to remember. Even fun bad films, which some people like more than others. I'm looking at myself. And we raise a glass as well to uh, Japanese director Seijon Suzuki, best known for low-budget genre pop art flair and avant-garde theatrics, inspiring the likes of Quentin Tarantino and Jim Jarmusch. He died on February 13th at the age of 93. Probably the film's best known here in the States, and a lot of them put out on Criterion, with which we are eternally grateful. Films like Everything Goes Wrong, Youth of the Beast, Gate of Flesh, Branded to Kill from 1966, Tokyo Drifter from 1966. I watched uh, Tokyo Drifter this week after hearing about his, his passing. And uh, yeah, uh, great music. I, not, en- not enough Japanese discotheque scenes for my taste. Uh, great flashy suits, pulpy. Um, you could also say there's a little bit of Sam Fuller in some of his work. Um, but th- this was not your regular uh, crime slash Yakuza films that were coming out at that time. Um, lower budget but to the point, and uh, really, really enjoyable. So if you get a chance, and it, it, you can go, a lot of those, like I said, the titles I just mentioned are on Criterion. Um, yeah, they're worth checking out. Okay, uh, you know, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back after the break, we'll talk about what is on DVD and Blu-ray, and then my interview with Stuart McLean from 2011. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm I'm listening to Film Sociology, and and uh, it it's a real program. It's great. Hi, everybody. This is Joel Hobson. I'm the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI in Indianapolis. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. Okay, before we get to my 2011 interview with Stuart McLean, uh, some titles on DVD and Blu-ray. Now, a couple, well, the big title, two, uh, actually three films that are up for Academy Awards come out on video this week. Yes, they are on video. I still stress you should you should see these on the big screen. Um, and actually, one of them is still in theaters. I guess I should correct myself. The three films, Manchester by the Sea, Hacksaw Ridge, Nocturnal Animals. Now, Nocturnal Animals has Michael, Sh- uh, Michael Shannon up for Best Supporting Actor. Hacksaw Ridge, Best Picture, Best Director for Mel Gibson, Best Actor for Andrew Garfield, and a few other awards. Um, Nocturnal Animals I liked, it, but didn't love as much as uh, his other work, A Single Man. Um Unsettling at times, really strong performance from from Shannon, uh, but yeah, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Jake Gyllenhaal, Amy Adams. It's it's a cold it's a cold piece of cinema with a, a bit of a middle finger near the end, which I didn't mind. Uh, but I, I I don't think I was bowled over by it as much as I was a single man. Hacksaw Ridge is Mel Gibson's Sergeant York. It is bloody. Um, it uh, doesn't pull punches over the horrors of war, uh, but there's it also feels to have a lot of 40s cornball-esque uh, cheese to it from the 40s war films. The aw shucks relationship between man and woman. The uh, Vince Vaughn as a sergeant who looks like he's desperately wanting to crack jokes but knows he cannot. Um, it is a spiritual film in Gibson's own way. Uh, I, of course, said that Andrew Garfield is this year's Kate Winslet. He's nominated for an Academy Award, but for the wrong film. Um, I thought he should have been nominated for Silence, which I thought was a stronger performance and a much more challenging film. And Silence was a film that made my top five. Uh, but anyway, that is out there as well. Manchester by the Sea is still in theaters. And uh, see it there. And I, it's... I know it's a hard film. It is It is the polar opposite of La La Land. Um, my, my daughter, Emma, has been talking about wanting to sit through, about watching it because she feels she should. She's one of those when it comes to Academy recognition. But she also knows it's going to be a tough watch. And uh, Kenneth Lonergan, whose films I've, I've championed, I enjoyed uh, Margaret, both versions. And, of course, you can count on me, fine writer, not only do we have the the grown up, the Casey Affleck character, who has to, the responsibility of taking uh, over parental parental duties for his nephew, but also and and trying to get his own life in order, but also the procedures of what you have to do when somebody in your family dies, the procedures, the meetings, the things that have to happen in order to get the uh, the funeral arrangements and everything taken care of. It is a hard, hard watch, but I think it's worth it. So anyway, that is out there. And if none of those do anything for you, Bad Santa 2 is now out. I've already seen... Well, I've seen pictures of Christina Hendricks, and I'm and I'm sure I've seen a foul mouth Kathy Bates. So, you know, good for you, Billy Bob. You got another one of these old titles on Blu-ray this week. Um, 
Speaking of musicals, speaking of old-fashioned musicals, from 1971, Ken Russell's musical version of The Boyfriend, starring Twiggy. It is a backstage adventure. To, you know, Twiggy's going to come out and uh, an unknown, and or you know, enter the stage unknown and leave the stage as a star. It is a backstage drama musical comedy, but it's directed by Ken Russell, and it's G-rated. It is not Tommy. This was. Four years before Tommy, um, it has some of the weird visuals that you expect from a Ken Russell film, especially in the 1970s. But it's an old school musical at heart. So, uh, yeah, this is before he went off the deep end with the other films like The Devils and The Music Lovers, Tommy, Listomania, all of which, of course, I highly recommend because I love Ken Russell. The man's a lunat was a lunatic and a fun cinematic lunatic. Anyway, that is out on Blu-ray if you need that. Uh, Criterion has put out the original Mildred Pierce, as well as Woman on the Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And if you're into fun, bad cinema, uh, I believe it's Olive Pictures that put it out on Blu-ray, the 1974 Southern exploitation film The Klansman, racial tensions in a small southern town with Sheriff uh, Lee Marvin, and uh, Scholastic Man and Drunkard Richard Burton. Richard Burton with a southern accent, always fun. Uh, Leslie Uggams, Linda Evans, and making his film debut, O.J. Simpson. And yes, O.J. Simpson's docu the documentary about him is up for Best Documentary and will probably win. I won't vote for it because it was on TV first. Talk to Chris Lloyd about that. Anyway, back to the Klansman. But yes, there is an action sequence in 1974 in this film that happens in a, in a white Bronco. So we're just going to leave it at that. Anyway, it's directed by Terrence Young, who did some of the Bond films in the 60s. Um, trashy fun. And, and I kind of wish there was footage of, uh, of Richard Burton and Lee Marvin having lunch together. Um, that would have been more at times more entertaining and maybe more fun than the Klansman. But it's fun bad. So, uh, anyway, The Klansman is out on Blu-ray now. Okay. Um, in 2011, I got to interview Stuart McLean because the Vinyl Cafe got to come to Indianapolis. Um, WFYI, if I remember correctly, was the third station in the U.S. to carry the Vinyl Cafe. And uh, I took an immediate liking to it. Uh, kudos to Richard Miles for getting the show here. Um, as I've said in promos, great music and great storytelling. And uh, what I loved about Stuart was that he would give unknown and up-and-coming Canadian musicians a voice to be heard on the air. And uh, I was already doing that with the Blues House Party, with blues musicians, especially local musicians, but um, in a way to hear another show doing what I was doing. Um, was very inspiring for me. And in fact, the last time Stuart and the show came here, he had uh, acoustic blues guitarist Harry Manx, a gentleman who combined acoustic blues with Indian sitar music, and is one of my favorite group, one of my favorite artists. And uh, anyway, he, he brought him here, and I got to see that at the Hilbert. But uh, I talked with Stuart a little bit about the history of Canadian cinema, and he talked about the, the connections between Hollywood and Canada, how a lot of producers made films strictly for tax breaks and would bring in big-name stars from Hollywood to pad it up. And so we, we talked about that, and, and I, I will play the interview, but I also have to recommend, highly recommend and I'm not sure the last time it was updated, but there's a fun website called Exploitation: Your Complete Guide to Canadian B-Films. And uh, it's one of those where you kind of look through and you realize, oh, that was shot in Canada. Meatballs is an example of something that was shot in Canada, but we didn't know 
when I was a kid, I just knew that it was a Bill Murray film set at summer camp. But you'll go through and you'll see a lot of titles. And, and you have your standard, your horror films, your sex comedies, especially in the 60s. Um, recently, I came across a thriller called Curtains, which had Samantha Agar and John Vernon, which I'd always seen posters for. And I found it on Blu-ray at a pawn shop for a couple of bucks. And not a bad thriller. A little, it's a little uh, haunted, not really haunted house, but um, people getting picked. A little 10 Little Indians, a little slasher film. Uh, anyway, go to canucksploitation.com, C-A-N-U-X-P-L-O-I-T-A-T-I-O-N.com. Canucksploitation, with an exclamation point, your complete guide to Canadian B-films. That's a fun read. And, not, and then you'll look for stuff. All right, with that in mind, here is my 2011 interview with Stuart McLean of the Vinyl Cafe. Thank you, Stuart. Joining me on Film Sociology is the creator, the writer, the host, the man who is the Vinyl Cafe, Stuart McLean. He's going to be at the Hilbert Circle Theater Sunday afternoon at 2.30. How you doing, Stuart? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Good to have you back in town. This will be your second time in Indianapolis, and we heard you're going to be taping this time. Yeah, we're, we're taping in Indianapolis and in Cleveland this, uh, on this tour, which is the first time we've ever toured and uh, taped in the state. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a deal for us. Well, we appreciate being a part of that deal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, at least some of the music and maybe a, a sample of the stories that are going to be done on Sunday. Um, we've got Luke Doucette, uh and uh, and his wife, uh, Melissa McClellan, touring with us. They're just back off the Sarah uh, McLaughlin uh, uh, North American tour. And before that, Melissa had been on the Little Affair. I think they've both been on Little Affair. They're both... Um, what can I say about them? She's an amazing singer. She's just one of the she's one of the great young singers in the country right now, and, and Luke is a fabulous guitar player. He's been, he's been playing with um, Sarah for uh, twenty years as her guitarist. So they're great. Both of them are terrific musicians, and uh, uh, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to them. Uh, stories we've got we got three stories. We've got two brand new Dave and Morley stories and an old favorite to boot. Uh, the new ones. Let me see. One of them, Dave visits a, an old friend in a hospital and uh, well, decides he, the guy needs the, the guy needs to uh, go for a walk, and so he busts him out of uh, out of hospital and chaos ensues. Uh, and in the other one, Dave uh, Morley. In the other one, Morley is clean. It's springtime, and Morley's down in the basement cleaning out the uh, uh, just kind of giving the house a haircut, trying to. Uh, clean things up a bit, and she finds an old doll in the basement that she doesn't remember, and that uh, that sends them both off, both Dave and Morley off on a on a circuitous path through their memories, trying to figure out where this doll came from and who it might have belonged to. Hey, I, I was curious. Do you do you get people yelling requ- story requests at your shows? Yeah, sometimes, especially the turkey stories, the one they like the most. They, uh, <laughs> that 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 uh, if I give people a chance, they'll they'll be asking for that one. And then you have a four hour show. Uh, we have about a yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back a little bit, I I was curious. Uh, do you remember the name of the movie theater in your neighborhood growing up? Do you remember going to that? You remember going to? Oh yeah, there was the Kent Theater and the, and the Avenue Theater. The Avenue Theater, which had a or rumored to have a private screening room where you could have birthday parties, but I was never, you know, where you. I guess they were. I guess it was a corral where they'd put kids in where they wouldn't, you know, uh, Break mess things. up with everybody else. Um, but I never got to it. But in Montreal, actually, film wasn't a, uh, a a big deal for kids because there was a horrible fire in, in, in Montreal in a theater in the 1920s. 
where 75 kids in a matinee burnt, were, were killed, were suffocated mostly trying to get out. It was one of those awful events where the, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the doors opened in instead of out and uh, an exit was barred. And in fact, that fire was key for making across North America, for making it uh, imperative to have exit doors open outwards instead of inwards. I see. And in a complicated and political uh, development, the Roman Catholic Church, which didn't like the idea of popular film and which more or less controlled uh, Quebec, the province of Quebec, the French-speaking province of Quebec, used the disaster to uh, get what something that it had been trying to get for a long time, which was to keep kids out of uh, theaters. So for close to 40 years, from the 20s up until the 60s, if you were under 16, you couldn't get into a movie theater in, in, in Montreal, where I grew up. Well, there was no Saturday matinees for kids. It was just uh, they finally brought in at some point in the early 60s, they decided it would be okay to have family films and and, and kids could attend a matinee if their parents came with them. And I think the very first movie I saw was a Walt Disney nature film. It was the, the, the content was very carefully uh, uh, looked at before kids were allowed in. It was Perry the Squirrel, and uh, which was, uh, I have to say, although I was very excited to be going to my first movie in a theater, was a bit of a disappointment because it wasn't... <laughs> Sinbad the Sailor Man or Davy Crockett or some of these other adventures I'd seen advertised in the in, in the movie pages and uh, well there you go. It, it seems like it was even stricter than the Motion Picture Association of America here in the states. Oh, it was totally. I mean, you just couldn't go into a theater. That was it. You were just not allowed in. Uh, now, was there a lot of like Sunday or Saturday afternoon television, like movies on TV? Not that I remember, which might have been a good thing, you know, because television only really <laughs> arrived in Canada. <clears throat> the first, our first TV was for the uh, coronation. When Queen Elizabeth was coronated, people sort of went out and bought television sets so they could see that. Uh, but really, people didn't have TVs until the late 50s. So it, it, we, we, were, we were told just to go out and play and go and play. Boy, and, and longer attention spans. Well, I've got a friend. You're right about that. I uh, I had a I have a friend who works in television news who was who on his desk has a uh, a document where he every year he he monitors and keeps track of the average length of clips in news uh, pieces. And I think when he started the, the the clip being you know the interview section of the mm-hmm. of the piece where the reporter would throws to. Uh, you know, the politician who has something to say or whatever, um, or the grieving widow or whoever you got in the story. And he said in the 60s, they used to be 30 to 40 seconds long, and now they're under 10 seconds, these clips. So everything has to move so much faster today. Now, uh, did you guys have a lot of, uh, were there a lot of drive-ins in Canada? Now, that's funny you should ask that. I was in Austin, Texas last week. And I went to an urban drive-in in the middle of downtown Austin. We uh, a, a, a drive-in in a real seedy part of town, um, <laughs> where room with room for uh, 13 cars, and you'd uh, but with all vintage uh, equipment, vintage hookups, and uh, we sat in our car and watched beach blanket bingo. Oh my! Uh, and, and ate vintage candy in this industrial part of Austin. It was uh, it was fabulous. No, going to a drive-in was always my great desire. There were, there were because once again you weren't allowed to go to those. But I I finally um, I finally had my dream come true in Austin last week. One of the things that's always been noted is it seems like the 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 U.S. film industry has always overshadowed a lot of going on of what was happening up in Canada. When did that When did that begin? 
Well, the Canadian film industry kind of began during World War II. A guy by the name of uh, David Grierson, uh, I mean, there were films made before that, but a guy by the name of David Grierson was famously brought over from England to set up the National Film Board of Canada. Which was formed which, in '39. And it was begun as a uh, kind of a propaganda arm, really. It was there to put to produce uh, films uh, to encourage um, patriotism during World War II. But it very quickly um, after the war morphed into this hotbed of creativity and became, because of Grierson, famous for its uh, uh, well for a documentary film is what it. Uh, um, first became known as, and then, and then for animation, uh, the NFB was a uh, um, uh, made a lot of Oscar-winning animated shorts and a lot of great documentaries. And and and, and can- Canada and Canadians have had a uh, a long history of being very strong in both those things, and have peopled a lot of American um, uh, documentary shows over the years. Have uh, provided the talent for that. But we've never really developed in the way that America or even, say, Australia has a a, a strong um, feature film industry. Uh, we've we've turned it of our own with a strong Canadian identity. We we we've ended up becoming a service industry. We we're known as Hollywood North, uh, right. and a lot of um, American productions will come to Canada and uh, work with Canadian uh, studios, with Canadian you know on Canadian lots and Canadian um, with Canadian directors, actors, whatever. But they are largely American-driven films. Uh, for a while, they came up because the dollar was the uh, Canadian dollar was uh, lower than the American, so it was economic for people to come to Canada to shoot films. Um, and and in the Canadian side, it was always it was it was thought of as a uh, way we could develop the industry, but the Canadian industry never developed. You know, we're not telling our own stories. Right. We're, we're telling your stories more than ours. Well, I, I remember reading a piece on how there were two films uh, that were an example of, of that, of not showing the Canadian identity, even though it was uh, a massive amount of Canadian work. Which, one was Porky's, directed by Bob Cl- I think Bob Clark directed that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Meatballs with, with Bill Murray. And I think they said the only, the only Canadian identity was a, was a Canadian's jersey on a wall. Well, and that's the the problem is we don't have distribution. It's very interesting. Um, the music business. We're a small country. I mean, we're a huge country, but we're small geographically. But our population is small, and the music business, the government policy, public policy became. They recognized that in order to build a Canadian music industry, they had to support it. And the way they supported it is they, they, it became law. There was legislation made that radio stations in Canada had to play a certain amount of Canadian content. Mm-hmm. And they grumbled about this at the beginning. Uh, at first it was 25. It, go, it, it ranges between 25 to 50% Canadian content music, uh, depending on the type of station and the type of music. And the definition of what Canadian music is is fairly broad. It has to have a certain component of uh, of uh, either recorded in Canada, written in Canada, performed by Canadian musicians, sung by a Canadian singer. You don't have to hit all four, but you have to get a certain percentage of those four. Mm-hmm. And, and because this existed, and because Canadians therefore started hearing Canadian music, Canadian stars uh, started 
to emerge because musicians could afford to stay in the business. And if you've got enough people doing it and making their living doing it, finally those stars will emerge. And that's why people like Katie Lang and Joni Mitchell and Randy Bachman and, and Leonard Cohen and uh, came out of the, the fog. They wouldn't have existed unless this support had been there. That never happened with film. It didn't happen at the multiplexes. They, the, the movie theaters weren't forced to show the Canadian movies. So any kind of small Canadian movie that might have emerged, like you saw emerge out of Australia, didn't happen. And we became the service guys for the American, uh, for, the, for Hollywood. And therefore, we became Hollywood North rather than Canada, and we were producing meatballs, and as you said, instead of some small movie that might in some way tell the story of who we are, uh, and not in an earnest way, but in, the, in, you know, in a fictional way, the way movies can do that. I would say, how big, how big of an impact were the tax shelter films of the '70s and '80s, or was just well, that was that was the see that was the, the while well, the government realized they had to do something to support movies, uh, they went at it that way instead of the distribution. And so, if you invested in a movie, you got to deduct it from your uh, income tax. So everybody was making you you could make these ten thousand dollar investments in a movie. And, and in the first year, you get to write off $7,000. In the second year, you, you got to write off another $7,000. And therefore, you got your money back without the movie having to make money. And what happened is nobody cared what movies they were making. They just cared that they got these, that movies were being made you could invest in. And the, the emphasis became on the, went on the deal rather than on the film itself. And so lots of movies were made while these tax shelters were going, but they were movies that nobody wanted to see. Well, I I I've, I've actually wound up seeing a few of those as a kid, and I know I think it was it was discovered in 1979 that more than half of the 66 Canadian produced films weren't even released. But they made investors very happy because they got their tax credits. Well, it's, it's very it's a very interesting um, uh, to to compare the different uh, attempts at. at at, at government, uh, trying to uh, manipulate public policy in order to affect um, the the artistic uh, uh, world and and to try and support the artistic world and how it succeeded in the music industry in creating this homegrown music industry and how it's also succeeded in the film industry because there is a vibrant film industry in Canada, uh, but it isn't telling our stories. It's it's servicing Hollywood as opposed to uh, telling the Canadian story. And, we're, and when you listen to, I mean, when you listen to Joni Mitchell, when you listen to the band, when you listen to uh, Leonard Cohen, you, you know, you can tell they are, they're deeply involved with their Canadian roots they're, uh, uh, and are reflecting the country in some way, but the films aren't. I think of a couple directors, and you mentioned earlier there's a number of actors and directors and producers who, uh, you know, originally are from Canada and then moved to the United States. And, you know, everybody from Ivan Reitman to David Cronenberg. But two directors I think of, uh, if you want to have a Canadian director, I think of Adam McGoyan and, uh, and Guy Madden. How are they, are they looked upon uh, highly, regarded highly in Canada? Well, they're regarded highly by critics. Right. And they're regarded highly by film festivals, but their films don't. Uh, aren't uh, in in wide um, uh, distribution across the country. 
uh, and they, and I mean, those guys are not making films that would necessarily um, uh, open in three thousand screens. No, they're they're making more idiosyncratic and uh, many would say interesting films, but they're not uh, they're not um, making those. You see, that, that's what we've got. We've got, and, and on the other end of the spectrum, James Cameron. Who, who made Avatar and Titanic, the two mm. gr- largest grossing films in history. He's a Canadian, so, but he's not making Canadian stories. So th- we have both ends of the spectrum covered. We've got the, the guys who've developed through the Hollywood studio end of things, and we've got the artistic small film being made, but we don't have the guys in the middle, middle of the men or the women in the middle of the road making, uh, or in the middle of the pack making small, popular movies that reflect our story. So we're not going to have James Cameron doing a film version of the Trailer Park Boys? Well, he, 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 he might, but it'll be, it'll be a toss-off. It'll be <laughs> something that he does at some point in his career to, uh, 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 <laughs> because his conscience is nagging him. Right. Are you familiar with a website called Canuxploitation? No, I ha- I'm not. It's it's a guide to the B movies from Canada from uh, like the 50s through the 90s. Uh, and no, uh, that sounds like fun. Well, it is because I was going through some of these, and and as a kid, I I knew I saw some of these films in theaters, saw them on video, saw them in you know at the, on cable, and you know only as I got older and more into this business, I found out that it was a, a Canadian made film. You know, films like the original Black Christmas, which I know is a cult classic for horror fans, uh, the Changeling, the Brood. Obviously, a lot of these are are horror films, but. Uh, but films like uh, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, I remember seeing that as a kid. Even uh, in my hometown of Flint, Michigan, we got the Gray Fox, the Richard Farnsworth oh, yeah. Western, which I thought was just fantastic. And now, that was, was a, that was a great movie, and that was well seen across Canada. Mm-hmm. And that and though and that's the exception that proves the rule. That's one of the that's the sort of film that I'm talking about that we should be making more of. And and a film like Black Robe, which t- w- did a better version of the Dances with Wolves story. So, Stuart, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, do you get to see any movies when you're on the road, and how often do you get to see stuff at home, when you're at home? These days, uh, when, first off, do I get to see movies on the road? Never. Occasionally we have a night off, but usually, usually if we have a day off between shows, it's a travel day, and we're moving from one, one place to the other, and we'll be on the bus for 10 hours. And by the time you come to the hotel, uh, if you get to, you know, if you've been traveling on the bus all day, the idea of going and sitting in a, a movie theater just doesn't uh, isn't what I feel like anyway. You, you tend to just want to settle down in your room and read or uh, go for a walk. Uh, at home, uh, I, I'm I'm a writer these days is how I spend most of my time, and I've got I, I, I'm a, I seem to always be on a deadline. Which is a writer's best friend. I'm not complaining about being on a deadline. I think when people ask me about how, how, what's my advice to being a better or being a writer, I always say find yourself a deadline because it, uh, uh, it's what will make you sit down in your chair and, 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 and get writing. Um, and a deadline can be anything. It can be a, an assignment from somebody. It can be a creative writing class. It can be a, a writing group, uh, whatever it is, it just has to be something that forces you to, to, to produce. So I, I, I find that I'm, um, I'm uh, per- spending a lot of my time producing. I, I, I did, however, for Christmas, make my uh, sons a little book this, this year where I, uh, um, I, I 
sent them a book with uh, my favorite um, uh, movies of all time and uh, uh, with a little explanation as to uh, what each movie was and, and why it was important to me. And, and so I have been thinking about the films of my life and, uh, and realized during the exercise that, that movies were, had been more important to me than, than I thought. Can you give me a sample? Um, gee, now I got to. I thought I thought I could say. I open my mouth. I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> say something. Uh, say them. Well, uh, I mean, my favorite movie of all time was Lawrence of Arabia. I uh, that was on the list of ten. There was a movie called The Flim Flam Man with George C. Scott. Yeah, you know it. Oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh. con artist film. Yeah, that's right. Well, I was a bit of a con artist myself as a young guy, and and it was. I think that movie resonated with me um, in a big way because uh, I'm so impressed that you know it because um, uh, because I um, went to see it without knowing what it was about and um, that uh, and it just had this great uh, it was just it was spoke to me and it was uh, it was about a, a, um, a con artist who took a young lad under his wings and uh, taught him the game, and I, I desperately wanted to be that young boy. I, I ha- go, I'm sorry, go ahead. You go, no. Well, I say I had a similar feeling, and it is, this is another example of I saw the film not knowing it was a Canadian film but enjoyed it nonetheless, was The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. No, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen Richard that Dreyfus. one. Yeah, and I know the author of that film, had another one of his books was made into a movie last year, Barney's Version. Yes, that's right. Another one of Richler's book was made into yes, it. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that was a um, uh, Barney's version is a great book, and that that I haven't. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. I I haven't seen that uh, um, uh, seen it yet. I it, I haven't read it, but I I thought Giamatti was excellent in it, and I really really enjoyed. it. In fact, it looked like something Richard Dreyfuss or Dustin Hoffman would have starred in forty years ago. Well, that's great to hear. It's a great it's a great book actually. It's uh, if you if you uh, feel like uh, a read, I'm glad to hear the film's good. But uh, the book bu- the book was great too. Cool. I'll, I'll be on the lookout for it. Now you you were going to say something. Oh, I was thinking of the other films. Another one that I the, another one that was on my list, and these were not films that I put on the list uh, because they were necessarily great movies, but because they spoke to me in a important way at a different you know different. Parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Another one was a, a little documentary. We're talking about documentaries uh, made in the '60s out of California called Skater Dater, uh, which is a 12-minute movie with no uh, no dialogue. Which actually I learned later as I went, as I was kind of researching the thing to tell my boys about it. I either won or was uh, nominated for an Oscar as the documentary of the year, and it was it was a piece about little boys uh, learning how to uh, skateboarding in, in in somewhere in California. And then one of them seeing a girl on a bicycle and being diverted to her as he grew, you know, his, as his as his loyalty to the group of skateboarders was uh, challenged by the pretty blonde thing on the bicycle. It was a, lo- a lovely little movie, and I just watched it the other day. It's very fun. It's a fun exercise to go through to to, to try and go through the movies of your life and and, and choose ten which are the movies of your life that, that, that spoke to you in, in some way. And then to find them. It's hard to find these films. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. I mean, with the, the Conexploitation uh, website, yeah, a lot of these films are not on DVD. I think part of it is maybe who owns the rights to what and how do you convert them. But, yeah, there, there's still a, a, a number of films, no matter where they're made, that, that haven't made it to DVD or Blu-ray or online yet. So it's there is still a, a bit of a hunting feel, I guess, kind of like going into a record store and looking for an old album that's out of print. 
which makes it all the more fun. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So the, the the search keeps going, I guess. Uh, well, for me, and that's uh, I've, I yeah, because I've told them I'll, I'll get them all the movies, and I, I think I've I've um, I've got four or five so far, and uh, I'm looking for having having that as a little. Uh, project and and on the uh back burner is kind of fun well in baseball you're doing great well that you're right <laughs> <laughs> hey just curious what do you think what are some of the movies dave and morley would probably watch well dave would probably be watching meatballs <laughs> 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 proudly with, with, with a canadian beer in his hand and, uh, <laughs> sounds um, like my college days <laughs> What would Morley be watching? I mean, was it, do we do standard romantic comedies, or you know, they have to fight over what they're going to go see, what they're going to watch, give and take, as a lot of spouses do? You see, now you've you've, you've put a, you've given me some food for thought here. I I can't answer it, but I think I'm going to try. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good one. I I think, yeah, I think they would like romantic comedies. I think they, you know, Sleepless in Seattle and. Uh, um, what are some of those Hugh Grant movies? The, right, uh, for Love Actually. Actually. And, Love Actually. Yeah, Love Actually was just on, on cable last night. I think it's on a 24-hour loop. It's it's law, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, I really, really appreciate uh, your time. And and I, I guess you, you always have you always try to get Canadian musicians on, on your show. I'm waiting for you to put the band Anvil on your show someday. Okay. <laughs> I, I think don't hold your... <laughs> no offense to the band Anvil. I don't even know them. But I, 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 I fear that... Just the name sounds can, like it uh, won't be a. They won't. God love them. Can, won't, be, won't be on our show. Canadian metal bands that are in their fifties. No, well, it was worth a shot. Well, oh, maybe we could do them unplugged. Hey, there you go. I mean, it's a it's a really fine fine documentary. It's, it's called Anvil: The Story uh, of Anvil. Yeah, I think I've heard, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's some people have said if if Spinal Tap were real. But uh, but it's a it's a sweet story because you have these two, especially the two original members, who have been slugging it out in the music world for over thirty years, and and they just they they won't give up. It's very inspiring, and but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of loud music and silliness along the way. Well, I'll, I'll add it to my my list. <laughs> that was my 2011 interview with Stuart McLean of the Vinyl Cafe. Stuart McLean passed away a couple weeks ago. I don't know if he ever saw Anvil or heard them in concert. Kind of wish that he did. And while I have that brought up about Stuart McLean and the Vinyl Cafe, please go to canucksploitation.com for your complete guide to Canadian B-Cinema. Okay, we got a few minutes um, left in the show, and I think I have enough time to play this from 1966, the theme to uh, the Sejun Suzuki film Tokyo Drifter. Enjoy. <laughs> で生きてもなれはてない旅に出て、いつか忘れた東京の泣いてくれるな夜の雨、男の
地は赤く散る。ああ、東京流れ物。From 1966, that was the theme from Tokyo Drifter. I think we have time for one more.、Uh, from 1967, I believe, the theme from Branded to Kill. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Have a fun awards weekend. And if you're listening to this on Monday, nothing I can do about it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.